0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This podcast is for listeners who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean and learn about its past and present. Thank you for joining me today. I'm your host, Ahmed Al-Mazmi, a PhD candidate at Princeton University. Today we are here to talk to Professor uh, Rila Mukherjee, the author of India and the Indian Ocean World from the Earliest Times to 1800, published by Springer in 2022. Rira Mukherjee is a professor of history at the University of Hyderabad, India. She has authored six monographs, singly and jointly edited nine volumes, contributed 46 chapters to national and international publications, guest-edited themed issues uh, in two international journals, and published 28 articles in national and international journals on oceanic histories. So we have an esteemed guest that I'm really excited to talk to today. And today's book, India and the Indian Ocean World from the Earliest Times to 1800, uh, integrates the latest scholarly literature on the entire Indian Ocean region, from East Africa to China. Issues such as India's history, India's changing status in the region, and India's cross-cultural networking over a long period are explored in this book. It is organized in specific themes in 13 chapters. It incorporates a wealth of research on India's strategic significance in the Indian Ocean arena throughout history. It enriches the reader's understanding of the emergence of the Indian Ocean Basin as a global arena for cross-cultural networking and nation-building. It discusses issues of trade and commerce, the circulation of ideas, peoples, and objects and social and religious themes focusing on hinduism buddhism and islam the book provides a refreshingly different survey of india's connected history in the indian ocean region starting from the archaeological record and ending with the coming of empire welcome to new books in the indian ocean world and thanks so much professor leela mukherjee for taking the time to talk about your book
1: thank you Ahmed. that was a quite an introduction lovely introduction So now, what would you like me to talk about?
0: Yes. Can you please start us off by saying a few words about yourself? That is where you grew up, where you went to school, and how you became interested in maritime history uh, and and India's history and any influential mentors that you had along the way.
1: Right. So I was born in um, Calcutta. It's a city on East Coast India, and it's called Kolkata now. And Calcutta, of course, was the first place where the British set up a colony, the East India Company. The first official settlement which transformed into a colony is Calcutta, but that is not really why I um, got interested in maritime history. Well, you know, so I did my schooling in Calcutta. I did my college in New Delhi and... uh, my master's in Kolkata again. And then I um, went off to Paris. I went off to France to do my MPhil. Of course, they don't call it MPhil over there. Uh, they call it De A, uh, which is the De- Pum De Kyuda Profundi, and, uh, and then a PhD. And there I worked with um, a very well known Indonesianist, a maritime historian called the Nilombar but at that time I was not uh, my PhD proposal and what I actually ultimately did my PhD work on was not really on anything remotely to do with the sea I worked on silk merchants and the silk trade at a place called Kasim Bazar in Bengal we are still on East Coast India and the reason I did that, of course, was um, it was easier for me to. It was easier for me to access the local literature in Bengali because I am a Bengali. Uh, the problem, of course, in India, as you know, is you know there are lots of languages. So generally, when we research, we tend to stick to the area we come from because that makes it that much easier for us to to. Uh, access the local literature. Now, so why did I get interested in maritime history? So, I worked on the silk trade, as I said, I worked on the silk trade at a place called Kasim Bazaar, which is in northern Bengal. It still exists today. Uh, It's close by to the 18th century capital of Mushidabad, which is also a town that still exists. And so, I was essentially doing land history. And uh, but I was dealing with foreign companies, the foreign merchants, and their dealings with the Indian merchants at Kasim Bazaar in the Silk Rate. And then I faced two problems essentially while writing my PhD thesis. One was that you know, I mean, my tools at that time, my temporal framework, my time framework, was the 17th and 18th century. Now you know the time that we study, um is always conditioned by the archives we get. So, you know, I was essentially using the East India Company documents, uh, both the English Company and the French Company documents. I don't read Dutch, so the Dutch Company, the Dutch archive was close to me. And uh, so the English and the French Company documents start off only from the 17th century. So I was working on... My my time framework, my temporal framework uh, was the 17th and the 18th centuries. But, you know, I was looking at silk and how the silk traders had evolved and how they were impacted by the coming of the the European companies. And I felt, you know, to find out the roots of this business, this trade in silk, I had to go further back. And so that was one problem, the time framework, you know. And of course, I couldn't go tired further back. I had to start in the 17th century, sir. So that was one problem that I faced. The other problem was, you know, that I felt that I was essentially dealing with a commodity that grows on land but is shipped out by sea. So the maritime dimension was completely absent. And uh, you must keep in mind that this was the 1980s. There was already the a generation of maritime historians working on India, like Das Gupta and Michael Pearson, and a few others, and they had a very different way of looking at India's maritime history, uh, from the earlier generation of maritime historians like Boxer for example, because Boxer was talking about sea empires, you know, so he was actually looking at uh, the Indian Ocean space, as something, you know, where people from outside come in and make an impact. So, Ashindash Gupta and Michael Pearson were trying to revise that view and they were trying to argue for a particular a kind of a primacy, if I may say so, of Asian merchants in the period even uh, during 1500-1800. So, the work of maritime historians started attracting me, but there's nothing maritime in my PhD thesis which was later published as merchants and companies in bengal uh, kasim Bazaar and Joktia in the 18th century after that i started looking more at bengal's position again i'm still i, I was still sticking with bengal because um uh, for the literature in the local language and how far bengal was really a maritime how, how far it had a maritime culture how far it was a maritime space and whether it had a maritime economy at all. So, and my conclusion was that Bengal was not really a very mar- maritime place. It's um, If you look at a map of India and if you look at the place of Bengal in it, it's, it's, it's a fragmented estuary. So, uh, the shipping is more estuarine rather than maritime. And also, Bengal lies in the north of the Bay of Bengal, you know, that's the region uh historically always subject to very very vicious typhoons um you know if you think of the bengal or present bangladesh and myanmar border you know we're talking about the tip of the funnel here you know always very very susceptible to extremely vicious um cyclones so before uh i mean in the age of sail, you know uh before the age of steam uh, shipping was always very, very coastal. Shipping was never really very maritime. And it's really from the 18th century onwards, the second half of the 18th century, the shipping actually transforms. If you look at the grand maritime routes, you know, uh, they essentially, I mean, coming from, let's say, West Asia, they would essentially always, you know, bypass Bengal, you know. They would uh, tax the peninsula and move up the Chola coast, that is, the peninsula coast, East Coast India. And then go on to Southeast Asia. So I um, was interested because I felt that Bengal was a a case apart. I mean, if you are going to call it a maritime region, I mean, it uh, presented certain features, you know, which uh, did not make it very maritime. So I started researching on maritime
0: history. That's it. Thank you for this detailed answer and going through your journey to the Maritime history of India. Um, we can now turn to the book and its chapters. Uh, the book consists of 13 chapters with an introduction and a conclusion. But before I start talking about the chapters, uh, can you let us know what do we gain by having a long, durée perspective from archaeological times to the 19th century to understand India's history in the Indian Ocean?
1: Well, I had two objectives. In writing India in the Indian Ocean World, one was that even now in uh, teaching in the college and university curricula and in policy making in India, there's a lot of maritime blindness. We call it maritime blindness. And despite, you know, G20, India hosting G20 and talking about maritime connectivity it doesn't really go back beyond the 19th century and this is partly attributed to the fact that the English, when they came, you know they initially said that Indians have a fear of seafaring and they attributed it to something called Kalapani or black water but Kalapani as a concept only comes up in the 18th century Uh, late 18th, basically it's a 19th century concept that you cross the Kalapani you lose your past. And this was essentially linked to the movement of global labour, you know, oh, the indentured labour that was sent across. For whatever reason, when um, universities of colleges or uh, think tanks in India, they talk about the maritime domain in India, they only go back as far as only the 19th century and they don't really go further back to understand why and how this notion of Kalapani actually came into being. I mean, that is why I stopped at 1800. You know, I didn't didn't find uh, uh, all these strictures against going to the sea very interesting. And in any case, I stopped at 1800 because, you know, after that, the sea changes very radically. And uh, I felt I did not have so much to talk about. So this is one uh, reason why I wrote the book to counter the blindness, maritime blindness. The second reason is much more prosaic. <laughs> since the 1980s, you know, since people like Washington Dasgupta and Michael Pearson and a whole host of other people, there's been an, almost an explosion of maritime studies uh, on the Indian Ocean world. And um, I felt that I just needed to put everything in one place. I mean, the book does not claim to be original in that sense. It's just a handy reader um, which talks about India's place in the maritime world of the Indian Ocean. I do not subscribe to the fact of um, India's superiority or anything like that in the Indian Ocean. I'm sure we have a locational centrality. But uh, in the book, if you through the book, you'll see that I first uh, look at the different postlines to find out their linkages, the networks and their history to show which of the postlines had more of maritime circulations and after that, I take up certain themes, you know, of uh,
0: India's place in the Indian Ocean world. That's it. Right. And and the book synthesizes a large uh, amount of scholarship in a very... Uh, Reader-friendly way, which I really uh, find very useful for students as well. Um, what were the ma- main challenges that you faced in trying to bring together scattered literature about India and the Indian Ocean? What
1: were the challenges?
0: And yeah, and bringing coherence to to this plethora of literature that we have I about.
1: I, I I I don't know. I mean, I think I've been thinking about this book for a very long time. You know, this book actually wrote itself, Ahmed. This uh, I wrote this book during COVID nineteen, and um, I was actually not in Hyderabad then. I was in Calcutta, and the book kind of wrote itself. Uh, you know, COVID nineteen. Of course, uh, we were all under lockdown. India had a particularly stringent lockdown in the first phase, in the first wave, and uh, so it was a good time to write a book. There were no distractions. It was very quiet. Oh. Uh, Challenges in weaving together, the disparate elements, no, no. I did not. I mean, it's maybe, I think it's the way all of us writers work, you know. We have bits and pieces and we, you know, keep the tabs open and we do, we do a section at a time. The only channel I, the challenge that I did face was, of course, the language challenge because whatever I wrote, for example, if you look at the chapter called Indian and Chinese Visions of the Sea, I mean it was all in translation. I don't read Chinese, I don't have Persian, I don't read Arabic, so this could turn out to be a potential shortcoming because I have not uh, looked at the documents I cite in the original, I've just used translation. So I think that's the only challenge I faced. And I was always very conscious of the fact that I was using translations. But then I had no
0: options. Uh, Despite these uh, limitations, as every scholar would face in trying to gather uh, different uh, language sources and materials, yet the book succeeds in bringing together uh, the scholarship up to date to think about India's maritime history. So, I would like to ask about this notion of maritime history. What makes uh, a a certain history maritime history, and what can it offer for understanding the subcontinent's past versus a history that is from within, let's say, to the outside?
1: Sorry, could you repeat that once again, please?
0: Yes, what's your your view of the notion of maritime history? How do you view it? How do you define it? And how do you find it useful for uh, narrating India's past?
1: Yeah, well, uh, let me answer the second question first. How, how and why do I find maritime history useful for for talking about India's past? Well, you know, in, as far as the second question is concerned, what I really was doing was not so much maritime history but postal history. In other words, I was looking at standing on the coast, the different post lines, and looking out to sea. And because if you look at, um, you know, a huge landmass like India and uh, a reasonably uh, regional based knowledge production of the various polities, they've always been very centrally land oriented. So the moment we get on the coast, you know, we get a completely different pers- perspective on uh, the kind of... Um, uh, interactions that the various coastlines were having with lands across the seas. And here, of course, there is a limitation because unlike the Chinese, the Chinese actually, um, for whatever reason, um, they have left us far far more bureaucratic records, administrative records of coastal administration. We don't really find that in the case of India, even of the coastal polities. Uh, so, you'll find that, you know, sometimes I've taken the help of iconography or even literature to imagine the maritime domain. So, that is what I have to say about your second question. So, the first uh, well, the first question that you asked was, what makes maritime history different? Uh, that would be an extension of the answer I gave you just now. But instead of standing on the post and looking out to sea, I would look at maritime history um, as something like, you know, that I am on a ship and I'm looking at the land. And, you know, Michael Pearson once said, I think it was his last, uh, last publication uh, in the Journal of the Indian Ocean World, which is brought out by Gwen Campbell's um, Indian Ocean World Center at McGill, right? He talks about the ship and then he talks about leaving the ship and going to the shore and then moving up the shore to the port itself. So, you know, at various stages, you know, one sense of being also changes. You know, I mean, you're on a ship, you're in a small place, it's crowded. Michael Pearson, for example, has written on religious devotion when he talks about the Hajj, but he's also talking about He's talked about violence on shipboard because a lot of people, different kinds of people are crammed together. And then there's this sense of liberation as you step out of the ship onto the shore. But then, you know, there's a problem also because you're on foreign soil, so you have to make your contacts, you have to uh, make your negotiations. Uh, You probably meet somebody from your community who's there, who's going to ease your way into the market. And then you move on to, um, to the port, the port structure itself, you know, from the shore. And here yeah, I'd like to bring in something that Aushin Dasgupta, who was also Michael Pearson's very close collaborator, <clears throat> talked about. He said that, you know, I mean, there is... Aushin um, Dasgupta did not talk so much about ships. Michael Pearson would talk about ships. But Das Dasgupta said that there's the port, there's the, you know, there's the shore, there's the port, and then there's the port city behind the port, you know. I mean, the port is the actual physical infrastructure, but then there's a port city or a maritime city, which is not necessarily located on the coast, you know. It's a maritime city that actually mediates the relations between the port and the interior, the provincial or the central capital. So I would like to say that, you know, um, if we look at maritime history that way, you know, coming from the ship, stepping out on shore, and then moving back, moving into the country itself, you get a very different perspective on the on the on the country you're visiting. I mean, you look at the, you read the travelers' accounts. A traveler's account who comes by land, let's say, through Central Asian route, and somebody who's coming by sea has a very very different perspective on the place. That's see an are thing.
0: Yeah. Yes, indeed. Uh, in in your second chapter, seeing the Indian Ocean, um. You have a section about Indian Ocean as method, thinking about periodization and scale in the ocean. Uh, what do you think of the Indian Ocean as a, as a space to generate theory and to think about methodology of writing history? Um, how do you think your uh, experience and, and, and readings have helped you to think about the Indian Ocean as a, as a method rather than just a geographic container?
1: Well, oh, you know... <laughs> I uh, don't really uh, deal with this aspect myself, but of late, you know, there has been a lot of work on the Indian Ocean as uh, the oceanic humanities. And uh, in fact, a lot of the work on the Indian Ocean is not carried out by historians now, but uh, more by English departments and literature people. And so, you know, people like Antoinette Burton, then, uh, Max Samuelson, they've written about the Indian Ocean as a space for generating theory and Isabel of of course. Uh, yeah, so I don't know. I mean, I'm not very clothed into that. Uh, I think I'm more old fashioned that way, that I still see it as a space of history. I feel, um, geography of. Uh, you know, has more of inputs or well, tend to the Indian Ocean, you know, like the work of uh, Steinberg, Kimberly Peters, and uh, anthropologists also writing on the ocean. There's a wonderful piece I read by Lindsay Bremner called Folded Oceans, where she's actually looking at the Indian Ocean all the way, I think, from the Lapset Lamu uh, corridor in Tanzania and Kenya all the way up to China. So these are the kind of ways I think these are very imaginative ways looking at Doshan and also Steinberg's earlier work, you know, the social construction of the sea. Literature, I'm I don't think I'm really qualified to comment on that. Uh
0: and indeed uh you take a geographic approach uh in the subsequent chapters, uh looking at uh the, the maritime boundaries and even land boundaries of India from the north to south, east to west. Starting from Sri Lanka, moving to the Bay of Bengal, the Arabian Sea, Africa, and the port cities of India, and then uh, discussing different textile crops, uh, animals, diseases, and the literature of marvels. yeah, uh, yes, and until so we move to the to the to the last three chapters. So, in in looking at the different directions uh, of India's engagement with its, uh, let's say, neighbors uh, across the sea or over land, we find many themes that interconnect the subcontinent to its neighbors. And different historians have picked different angles to look at these connectivities. Um, So, if you would talk about uh, how can historians think about uh, periodization when it comes to Uh, India's connectivity within the broader region, what would be, let's say, uh, the most significant uh, uh, markers of this periodization moving across the centuries as you do?
1: Significant markers of periodization. Is that what you asked me?
0: Yes, so can we think about volume or scale or uh, intensification or decline? Like what would be a useful Uh, let's say, uh, markers for Prida.
1: Yeah, you know, uh, something I would be very excited doing, but I don't think that we have enough documentation as yet, um, is to bring in more of the climate and epidemiological features into the Indian Ocean. There is a bit on that in my book, but uh, you know, a lot of the withdrawal of uh, polities from the Indian Ocean have been explained purely in political or economic terms. But disease or drought, climate change may have played a may have been factors as well. I mean the fifteenth century retreat of the Chinese from the with the Mings from the Indian Ocean, you know, um was earlier said that you know, it was a political decision and it was just getting too expensive and they stopped it. But now there has been data coming out of China, you know, that, wow, there were droughts and famines and the Ming's were already squeezed uh, financially. And at such a point in time, it was actually very, very difficult to finance the treasure fleet. China, of course, is a big monolith in the Indian Ocean, but even the smaller, smaller polities that do collapse in the 15th century, the 15th century is actually very important, I think, you know, talking about the realisation for the Indian Ocean, not because the Portuguese are coming in, but, you know, that's a time when um, quite a few of the polities in the eastern Indian Ocean, like Sri Lanka, where like Sri Lanka central, actually, uh, but the Khmer domains, they, I mean, then we see from the clearing evidence, you know, that there is substantial... Um, evidence of climate change, you know, and uh, there's a certain amount of desertification and at the same time, excessive rainfall in other parts. In other words, the climate was behaving in an extremely erratic manner, which actually led to the decline. I mean, it it stopped the irrigation in Sri Lanka, you know, the hydraulic feature in Sri Lanka and the Khmer domains also, you know, That was another hydraulic Pagan in Burma. So uh, these played havoc with the hydraulic uh, system in these countries. So I would like to see more of climate. I would like to see how far climate change is linked to disease. In other words, what triggers what? Uh, These might well provide a different uh, uh, perspective on periodization in the Indian Ocean because You know, the traditional perspective of periodization, of course, is um, the early period, then uh, the age of uh, the early empires in the Indian Ocean, then uh, Buddhism uh, going up to the 13th century as a great marker linking the Indian Ocean, both West and East. (coughs) And then 1500-1800 is seen as the period when the Europeans come in and by 1800, according to this story, this narrative, you know, it's all cut and dried. the British are here, the French are there, the Dutch are there, the Portuguese have gone, and uh, well, you know, the story is over, so to speak. But I think if we look at disease climate as markers, we might get a very different perspective
0: on periodization in the Indian
1: Ocean. I hope that right. answers your question.
0: Uh, Yes, it does. And and in thinking about geography, um, if you would compare and contrast uh, the way historians have covered the Eastern Indian Ocean versus the Western Indian Ocean and narrating uh, the broader oceanic history of India, um, where do you see the pitfalls and, uh, let's say, the the gaps that future historians should think about in writing about uh, India and the Indian Ocean?
1: You know, uh, yeah. Again, you know, I mean, the geographical centrality of the Indian Ocean of India in the Indian Ocean makes it very easy to uh, divide into uh, Western Indian Ocean and Eastern Indian Ocean. If you look at the historiography on the Indian Ocean, yes, most historians initially worked on the Western Indian Ocean. In the 80s up to the 90s, I think we had more data on the Western Indian Ocean than on the Eastern Indian Ocean. Then, um, and this was mainly the work of Australian scholars, they started working on Southeast Asia. And Southeast Asia, um, that naturally attracted attention on the Eastern Indian Ocean. And then, I think in the last 20 years or so, there have been a whole lot of non-Chinese scholars working on China in the Indian Ocean, Indian Ocean. They've been talking about a maritime Asia. So now the pendulum has swung towards the Eastern Indian Ocean more than the Western Indian Ocean. Now, pitfalls, I don't know. I mean, uh, we are just correcting the balance at this moment. But there is one pitfall. You know, no historian uh, really specializes in the whole of the Indian Ocean as a whole. It's either the Western Indian Ocean or the Eastern Indian Ocean. I myself know the Eastern Indian Ocean better than I know the Western Indian Ocean when I wrote my wrote the chapter on <coughs> the Western Indian Ocean, I think it was chapter Four or something at or maybe five i I actually had to do a lot of reading, which I did not really have to do when I was talking about Southeast Asia or China, but that's a personal pitfall oh but in the future um. I really don't see any scholar coming up who would have equal command of languages, both in the Western Indian Ocean and the Eastern Indian Ocean. So that would be a pitfall that would stay with us.
0: In the book, you talk about the problem of naming maritime spaces. And I would like to ask you about the suggestions by some scholars who propose the name Afro-Asian Ocean rather than Indian Ocean. Yeah. Uh, what is what, what are your thoughts on this proposition
1: well you know i mean um i think michael yes pearson first used the term and of course the definitive work on the Affiliation, of ocean has been done by Philippe chap um i like bojal's work but if you actually look at bojal's work of the efficiency sea of the affirmation notion he essentially stops around 1500 after 1500 he is not really able to show so much of Africa coming into the Indian Ocean, except that is there geographically. So, I think to set the balance right, yes, we should certainly bring in Africa. I mean, the earlier generation of Indian Ocean historians did not even acknowledge the existence of Africa uh, in the Indian Ocean. So in that sense, I think Boja's book is a very, very good intervention. But as I said, after 1500, then what do
0: right? Uh, So in in writing this book, uh, you wrote the book in a quite accessible style and you provide the discussion points at the end of each chapter with a list of uh, the US bibliography for uh, future researchers uh, to pick up on. Um, Who do you think uh, or who do you hope will read this book and what sort of impact would you like it to have?
1: Well, you know, one thing is I haven't seen reviews of this book anywhere. So, unless I get a few reviews, I really wouldn't know, I mean, uh, how my target audience is reacting to the book. What is my target audience? Uh, I would call it uh, an advanced reader target audience, the general reader who is interested in the Indian Ocean, or some kind of a maritime specialist who wants all the facts in one place. But until I see a few reviews, I really don't know how far this book is going to be useful. It's nice of you to say that, you know, with uh, discussion points are there, so on and so forth. I mean, they were meant uh, classroom exercises in the hope that, you know, uh, there would be a substantial uh, course on maritime history and where this book would feature in terms of the segment on the Indian Ocean.
0: That. To meet yeah it. i really find it useful actually and and uh, the chapters could be assigned even independently for undergraduate students yes. or grad students and the discussion yes. points are really good to start thinking about uh the different parts of the indian ocean and how it all comes together at the end
1: yeah that's nice of you it's kind of you to say that amit i was actually a bit disappointed with the discussion point because i felt i was running out of steam towards the end you know I mean, it does happen, you know, when you write a book, you, at one point, you get awfully tired, you know, and I was really getting tired of, you know, doing these discussion points. And I thought, oh my God, why did I even suggest to my publisher that I would put in classroom exercises, discussion points. Actually, I'd done a piece just before then for a journal you may be familiar with. I think it comes out of Michigan. Well, it comes out of Hawaii, but I think it's the Michigan Press. It's called World History Connected. Are you familiar with it? Uh, yes. Yeah. So Mark Jason Gilbert, you know, would always, Mark would always insist on discussion points, you know, classroom exercises. And I'd just done one of those, you know. So I thought it might be helpful if I had it here. And as I said, I got really tired towards the end of adding on these discussion points. I mean, I felt I was running out of ideas, you know. I mean, I I feel in retrospect, that the
0: discussion points could have been a little more imaginative. Now, this is really great for, for a book that came out of the pandemic. Now many people can, you know, take no, pride. We'd
1: be surprised. We'd in- be, be surprised. You know, I mean, uh, last year, we all traveled a lot because none of us had traveled, you know, over the last three years. And we were mainly meeting in Europe. And most of my colleagues had actually written pandemic books. So academics actually had a very good COVID. You know, (laughs) academics by nature are very solitary people. And uh, we like to hang out with other academics. So if we couldn't hang out with other academics, then the only thing we could do was write a book. And many of us did that.
0: Right. I even started this podcast, Ashley, uh, to to fill the gap and fill the void of the pandemic, to talk to other people and share the scholarship. So, yeah, I mean, we made uh, lemonade out of lemon, I guess. And uh, I'm really glad that you took on this project and you went on publishing the book. And uh, I hope that listeners will pick up the book and find the 13 chapters useful, uh, as I said, independently or connected to, uh, to to have an introduction to the different themes and periods and geographies of the Indian Ocean. Uh, Well, uh, Rilo, we've taken a lot of your time and uh, we would like to ask you our final uh, traditional question, which is, uh, what are you working on now or hope to work on if you can tell us more about your current or future projects?
1: Yeah, I actually am under contract with the same publisher. It's a a book on global history. I I do wear a hat, you know, I have a global history hat as well because I'm the chief editor of a journal, you know, which is... the Asian Review of World Histories, well I've pitched my journal here but this is a global history and uh, it's called Europe in the World and uh, again periodization is 1350-1650, very significant years in the history of Europe. Now I'd like to talk a little bit about it because I was quite enjoying writing that book, I finished off two chapters uh, the manuscripts due at the end of the year you know, years ago, years ago, almost 30, no, 20 years back, I wrote a textbook on European history, which was mainly for uh, Indian universities. And the Indian universities had then introduced a course at the undergraduate level called the Transformation of Europe, 1350 which was essentially, you know, um, century by century, mainly Renaissance, geographical discoveries, quote unquote, uh ending with the 17th century depressions, so it was essentially a very europe-centered europe-oriented uh, course and so i wrote about two no i wrote three textbooks which were actually i like to think they were very useful and then of course i mean i i taught that paper the transformation of europe well, at, i think some 12 years or 13 years and then i moved to hyderabad i used to teach in Calcutta before so then I moved to Hyderabad. When I moved to Hyderabad, they did have that course. Uh, By the time we, of course, we'd started the semester system, earlier we were on an annual system. And in Hyderabad, somebody else was teaching that course. So alas, uh, it wasn't called the transformation of Europe, it was called the rise of the modern West. But alas, I didn't get a chance to teach that course because somebody was teaching it and teaching it for a long time and teaching it very well too. So, I was actually given a course for of an earlier period called Medieval Societies. And earlier that, Medieval Societies meant Medieval European Societies, but I changed it, you know. I, I changed it to bring in the Arab world, I changed it to bring in a bit of China, I brought in Africa. I Yes, I brought in Africa because I found Africa very interesting and very significant in the Medieval world. So I was, uh, you know, so I was pottering along with medieval societies and then I thought that why don't I uh, reinvigorate this book of Europe, but in a very different way. So the book that I'm writing now, of which I'm very happy to say that just this evening before we started this interview, I finished the second chapter, well, finished a draft of the second chapter, it's called Europe in the World. 1350, fifty, six50. so you see Europe in the world, it's no longer European history but Europe and the world that Europe is interacting with so and that's divided into modules not chapters and each module can be independent which you also pointed out for the Indian Ocean book this is more geared towards students, it's got seven modules which can be used by teachers or students independently or the whole thing as part of a regular course, a longer course um. so uh, I wrote two introductions and I just finished the second introduction today so the first introduction is Europe in the world 1350-1650 the second introduction which I call general introduction to is called the world and Europe 1350-1650 so you know I, I'm looking at the same period from the point of view of Europe into the world and from the point of view of global history and how Europe is performing within that global history. And after that, there are seven modules, as I said, and each module will have uh, a short one page introduction. I think this book will be much more accessible to students. Um, it will have a minimum of references and
0: citations, uh, also to make it much easier for the student to access the reading material. Congrats on finishing the draft, the second chapter, and we look forward to see the <laughs> book out. Uh, I'm just curious if, if you are thinking of engaging Sanjay Subramaniam's book, Europe's India, and thinking about Europe in the world or the Indian Ocean.
1: Yeah, well, I still have to read that, you know. I'm glad you pointed <laughs> out because now I'm glad you pointed that out because, yeah, he has been writing on that game for a while, you know, even Portly Encounters, for example. So, yeah, you're right. I, I need to I no, no, don't have the facility of Sanjay, you know, with his languages. I think he knows or speaks about seven, you know. I mean, he has a tremendous advantage there. I think mine would be a much smaller a subsystem to Sanjay's sweeping vision
0: of the world. Yes, I, I, would be, I, would just, yeah. I would just be curious to see how you um write about Europe and the world in connection to, to India and the Indian Ocean as well. And we will be-
1: a draft and you can comment on it at some time?
0: I have your email. I would be very happy to do so. Uh, right. Well, uh, thank you um, for joining us today. And thank you for listening to today's episode in which we explored India and the Indian Ocean world from the earliest times to 1800, published by Springer in 2022. This is your host, Ahmed Mazmi. Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in the Indian Ocean World.